Hello and welcome back to The Bunker Daily. I'm Naomi Smith. Northern Ireland has been plunged into a political crisis with the DUP First Minister Paul Given resigning over the Brexit protocol. The move threatens the future of the Stormont government, with Deputy First Minister Michelle O'Neill also having to resign, as under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, neither leader can stay in power if the other quits. To unravel all of this, to find out what it all means, I'm joined by Amanda Ferguson, freelance journalist and co-founder of Women in Media Belfast. Amanda, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a groundhog day for a political crisis whenever it comes to Northern Ireland. So here we are once again. <laughs> Who was it that said something like, um, if there isn't a political crisis happening in Northern Ireland, just wait 10 minutes. It's like the rain. It'll it'll appear. Yeah, it's a pretty exhausting place to live, to be honest. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for joining us. And I'm sure that you are very in demand. So let's get right into it because there is a huge amount to cover. Obviously, the protocol has been a source of tension um, for the DUP for some time. But what was the tipping point that led to Paul Givens' resignation this week? Well, we know that the DUP backed Brexit um, and that this has been an ongoing sore. The protocol isn't to their liking because essentially they, they feel like Northern Ireland doesn't have the same Brexit that Britain has. Now, non-unionist parties would argue that the protocol is there to respect the sort of unique position that Northern Ireland holds in the UK, uh, you know, to stop there being a hard border on the island of Ireland um, and to protect the EU single market and that it mitigates against the worst impacts of Brexit. It. And um, indeed, the, a lot of businesses are benefiting from it as well. But we have had this non-stop discussion about the constitutional position, about the impact of Brexit. And then it all came to a head uh, earlier this week when the DUP Agriculture Minister, Edwin Putz, ordered his officials to stop doing some of the, the checks at the ports in Belfast. Now, that's still part of a legal uh, process. So we'll find out what, what's happening there for the moment. The, the checks are continuing. Mm. You know, repeatedly the DUP leader Jeffrey Donaldson has been, you know, threatening uh, action if the UK government didn't take action on the protocol, if it didn't come as quickly as he would like it, that uh, he was going to withdraw his ministers or he was going to take action of some sort. Uh, so that has followed with him withdrawing uh, Paul Given as First Minister, which because in Northern Ireland, First Minister is a joint office, uh, you can't have one without the other. And even yeah. though one title is First Minister, one title is Deputy First Minister, it doesn't mean that the deputy is subordinate, it's a joint office. So uh, that plunges us into crisis and the parties are now trying to work out uh, what they can do to uh, make government limp along and try and, and get legislation and, and different government business uh, oh. through. Because there is a raft of legislation at risk from this move. We're, we're going to come back to that at some point. So we had the resignation. Uh, before that, we'd had Agriculture Minister Edwin Poots halt these post-Brexit checks on, on food and farming products as they enter Northern Ireland from GB. Does that mean that international law has been breached or are the checks continuing regardless of that order from Poots? 
Well, the, the checks are continuing. Now, his his department officials, he's ordering his staff uh, to stop participating in that. We know that there are multiple people at the port, so there would be council staff there. Um, there would be HMRC staff there. Sometimes there would be border control staff there. So checks are ongoing uh, while the courts work out what's happening around this. Now, we know that no matter what a political party in Northern Ireland does, that the withdrawal agreement, that the protocol is um, something that is dealt with by the UK government and the EU, they are the the lead party in the negotiations. So, you know, it's up to the UK government to oversee it. Now, we know the Secretary of State has said that, you know, the the checks issue is something for the for the devolved government, which to an extent is probably correct. But the overall uh, protocol, you know, that's the the UK government and EU deals. So that's where we find it. It it certainly felt to Brexit sceptics, shall we say, like me, that this was a ploy by the UK government, who obviously desperately do want to renegotiate the Northern Ireland Protocol. They themselves aren't that happy with it, um, to absolve themselves of responsibility by saying, well, it's over to uh, the devolved administration, agriculture minister. If, if they want to suspend checks, they can. Um, so sort of getting getting their way, but without having to sort of carry the can for it. Well, you know, the, the UK government is the entity, the group, the people who made the deal with the EU, it was to respect the fact that Northern Ireland is on a separate island to the rest of the UK and because of just the, the history of here, the landscape, there was always going to be, have to be a border somewhere. Now, depending on who you talk to, people uh, like or don't like the protocol. Unionists don't like it because they feel that it treats Northern Ireland differently to the rest of the UK, that it's annexing Northern Ireland off, that it's the pathway to a new Ireland, that it's it's making um, Northern Ireland part of an economic United Ireland. And while there may be you know, an increase in trade between North and South, there's also divergence um, North and South because of Brexit. And that doesn't get mentioned very often. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's exhausting having to sort of pick through and do the fact checking whenever claims and counterclaims are made about either the, the detriment or the benefits that the protocol brings. But certainly nobody would argue that it doesn't need to be finessed, that it doesn't need to be made more practical. But what we've seen with this DUP move in the, in the last couple of days is that essentially it's really just the DUP think they've made a great move that the hardline traditional unionist voice party um, think that, that they're doing the right thing, that the Orange Order think they're doing the right thing and the Loyalist Communities Council think they're doing the right thing. But on the flip side of that, all of the other political parties, including even the Austrian Unionist Party and certainly all the business groups like uh, the IOD, CBI, the Northern Ireland Chamber have all come out and said that they don't need this sort of uh, instability at the moment particularly as well because we were due to have an assembly election. I know. In May, in May anyway. So well, people, let's see. You know, like the DUP <laughs> will say that it's about uh, the protocol, whereas their political opponents will say that it's about the elections. Exactly. So the DUP were obviously very strongly in favour of Brexit. Northern Ireland on the whole, though, voted 55% to remain. So, you know, way above uh, the average that we saw across the rest of the UK. Um, so the DUP... You know, ultimately, they 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 got what they wanted against the wishes of the majority, and have then spent you know the last five years being sore winners, if you like, and and complaining about the the kind of Brexit that they got. So, to what extent is this a move because they are fearful of their own sliding poll ratings and Sinn Fein's relative success, Alliance Party's relative success? Is this a preemptive move? Or to what extent is it a preemptive move because of them being very concerned about potentially ending up with a Sinn Féin first minister? 
Well, the DUP has been taking a, a hammer in recently in the polls. Um, you know, there is an indication that um, Sinn Féin would be likely to emerge as the largest party in Northern Ireland after the, the next Assembly election. And that presents a problem uh, for the DUP. I think it's more psychologically than anything else, because I referred earlier to the fact that First Minister and Deputy First Minister is a joint office. Uh, but a nationalist uh, has never held the largest party title. The Unionist Party so far refused to to say that they would enter government again if Sinn Féin was the largest party and they had to take the sort of secondary position, which is really a lot of, a lot of nonsense. And I suppose whenever you're looking uh, to, to the DUP taking this action now, there's so much jeopardy. We know that the, the term at the Assembly was due to end at the end of March anyway, and that the Assembly election was due to be held on the 5th of May, whereas now there's discussion about having uh, an early election. You know, the DUP could have waited uh, until the results were in on May 5th, 6th, mm. uh, and then said, you know, unless there's action on the protocol, uh, we're not going to, to, to form government at that point, but they've chosen to do it pre-election. And I think it's interesting what you were saying about consent. Um, there was no consent for Brexit here. Obviously, Northern Ireland voted to remain, but it was respected that because it was a UK-wide vote, you know, that that's what happens, uh, so that something needed to be brought brought in and that's what the, the protocol ended up being after all, lots of alternatives were rejected. So the DUP are now saying that there's no consent for the protocol amongst the unionist community, but there's no consent amongst the majority of the public for the withdrawal of, of the protocol. And really, after all the years of the negotiation, what actually is the alternative? Mm-hmm. I think the, the solution's probably found in making it more practical, uh, you know, stripping away some of the bureaucracy and so on. But it's just, it's a, an absolute head melt whenever you're trying to it explain is, what's going it is. on here. Um, and, you know, and I, I do speak to some DUP MPs from time to time, and I sometimes get the impression that this isn't that recent, that a lot of the upset and annoyance around the Northern Ireland Protocol, Brexit deal, etc. for the DUP is, is more like a foil for the fact that actually they would probably quite like a renegotiation of the Good Friday Agreement, uh, because, of course, Ian Paisley famously walked away from those negotiations back in the late 90s. Do you think that there is still an appetite within their party to actually relook at the entire uh, sort of constitutional arrangement between Northern Ireland and Westminster? I think that there is a lot of insecurity uh, in uh, the unionist, certainly in the unionist political community at the moment because of the changing demographics of Northern Ireland, of the the changing um, sort of landscape, political landscape that we find ourselves in. You know, our, the Good Friday Agreement was in 1998. We're now reaching the tipping point where Sinn Féin looked likely to be the largest party in Northern Ireland. They looked likely to enter government at some point in the Republic of Ireland. Uh, we know that unionism lost its majority in the Assembly. So really at the moment, the DUP's place that it can frustrate politics here is within the executive and that's what it's doing. But it should be made very clear to to listeners because we are dealing with a lot of disinformation or misinformation. Northern Ireland's constitutional position is that it's part of the United Kingdom. And if there is a border poll held and people vote for something different, then that's the only way that it's going to change. You know, it it can't be, can't sneakily be brought into an Irish scenario without your consent to do so. Uh, And I think think that everything that we discuss in northern politics every time I'm on radio or TV or on a podcast or anything like that the constitutional position is always what underpins absolutely everything, everything. Yeah. you know it makes me laugh whenever people ask you know is it an issue and I was like it's the thing we all talk about all day all every time. day <laughs> non-stop so we we touched on this earlier obviously with the Northern Ireland executive collapsing there is 
presumably a host of legislation that is meant to be making its way through that is now at risk. What bills in particular are in danger of, of you know, being put on ice, not being passed, etc.? And what does that well, mean for, for Northern Ireland? It, it's not quite collapse. It's kind of on life support at the moment uh, would be the kindest way to put it. I think that what we saw last time the government collapsed because, you know, Stormont was only restored in January 2020 after a three-year absence. Three years, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and then almost immediately uh, we were into the COVID pandemic, so a lot of the the sort of new decade, new approach, you know, the wish list for both sides of the parties had to be put to the side for a while, uh, while the the government had to come to terms with uh, the pandemic and COVID and, you know, Mm. lockdowns and all all, all of that. So what we're seeing now is that, in the last couple of months, the Speaker at the Assembly made very clear, look, we've only got a, a certain amount of time here. There's so much legislation coming through on things like organ donation and stalking and domestic abuse and climate and all of these different things. And, you know, he really sort of put a focus on, you know, let's get a move on with this. You know, we're not going to be able to necessarily get everything through. So actually part of the new decade, new approach uh, deal was to safeguard against a future collapse. Westminster's intervening to, to to sort of lengthen the amount of time from a possible, you know, withdrawal of first ministers to where it would actually be a collapse. And I think what we'll see is that a certain amount of business of government can take place, pending legislation can go through. But if there's an early election... And within whose gift is it to, to bring that election forward from May? The Secretary of State. It's up It's up to the Secretary of State to, to, to call the election. At the moment, it's scheduled in for the 5th of May. Um, uh, but we, we do have the DUP and, and Sinn Féin suggesting that Assembly, the government, isn't going to be able to limp along. The legislation stuff should be, the pending stuff should be able to, to work its way through if government doesn't collapse entirely. But there are other really important issues like the budget, like health service plans, like COVID restrictions, the mm. final COVID restrictions, the health minister's taking legal advice on whether he can unilaterally uh, dispense with those final ones. And also there's the really important items like the, uh, an apology to uh, abuse victims. You know, the first minister and deputy first minister were due to give uh, an apology to victims and survivors of historical abuse uh, at some point next month. And you can't do that if, if you don't have, you know, a, a function and executive in place. So it's just a really sort of horrible atmosphere and there's there's you know planned civil society sort of street demonstrations you know stand up for our democracy that kind of stuff so we'll see that in the coming days but certainly you know while some people support what the DUP do uh, or have done within unionism the the kind of widespread feeling I'm getting from the public is they're a bit aghast at what's actually happening that we find ourselves plunged into crisis yet again. Away from all of that that drama happening in and around Stormont that you have so articulately laid out for us. Um, you've also written an excellent piece about the armed patriarchy that is Northern Ireland. Tell us a bit more about it. Yeah, I, I did a piece for Open Democracy recently uh, on women's voices in the Brexit discussion because, you know, while I don't for a second think that the Republic of Ireland or that Scotland, England or Wales are some sort of feminist utopias, Northern Ireland does feel like a very patriarchal society. It does feel like 
we're behind in, in most things, including uh, on equality. You know, still within Northern Ireland, we don't have the the reproductive rights that are available to women uh, in the rest of Ireland and the UK. Um, and it does feel, because of where we came from um, and women were kind of uh, viewed as not being the decision makers, not being the political leaders, there's a hangover from that mm. uh, where they're not always in the room or they're not always invited. And I looked at this from the particular angle uh, of Brexit about how women's uh, voices weren't being included in the Brexit discussions, even in the high level discussions that there are between representatives in Northern Ireland with the UK government, that often women are excluded or there's only yeah. one or two women. And we felt perhaps because Liz Truss is now in charge of the, the Brexit side of things that um, more effort would be put into including more women's voices. But like on her, her last visit here, there were no women included in the UK government video that they put out afterwards, you know, talking about how they've been on like fact finding, you know, meeting visit to Northern Ireland. Well, she's very much a queen bee, Amanda. She didn't, not sure she, any of her videos ever strongly feature other women, that's for sure. I mean, it's definitely something of the Thatcher wannabe there. Um, and of course, Thatcher, who famously didn't promote women into cabinet. Now, I grew up in Northern Ireland during the late 90s. What was uh, really inspiring to me as a teenager in the late 90s was uh, that there was a political party dedicated entirely to women. It was called the Women's Coalition. Um, and I believe that at the time it was the only women's party that had elected officials anywhere in the world, but their electoral fortunes faltered in the early noughties and actually the party uh, ended up being wound up in 2006. Do they need to make a comeback? Did they not succeed because of that armed patriarchy culture that you speak of? Or had they sort of fulfilled their purpose? I mean, what, what would it take to break this, this stalemate now? Do we, do we need a Monica McWilliams 2.0? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure if we do. You know, whenever I speak to the women who were involved in the Women's Coalition, they say, no, that we, they, they don't need to bring that back. That was for a specific purpose. It was to insert themselves, um, you know, into the, the the peacemaking process. And like women have always participated uh, in peace building over the years and have been doing great work for, for decades and decades. It just hasn't always been appreciated as much. And I think that it's just we're, we're in a backdrop now of, you know, like Northern Ireland's femicide rate is, is crazy. We obviously have the historic issues around policing and community trust within policing that could, that could have fed into that as well. Yeah, I mean, I was I was really shocked, uh, you know, in, in following the stuff you've written about this, that Northern Ireland is one of the most dangerous places in Europe to be a woman. It has three times uh, the femicide of England and Wales. What's driving that? Why do you think that's the case? Well, you know, my intro uh, to, to, to the piece was when women's voices are excluded, you have to wonder if those doing the excluding didn't notice or notice and just didn't care. And I think that what we see in Northern society is it's it's from the very basic stuff right the way up to the most serious uh, stuff. You know, it's a, it's a spectrum. So, you know, the we had a, a storm recently about misogynistic tweets. We have regularly have media panels where women's voices aren't included or high profile meetings where women aren't, aren't included. And people always use the same argument to me. Well, you know, but we, we had a, a female first minister. We have females leading the political parties. We still only have a third representation. And certainly if it come whenever it came to the to the Brexit piece that I was looking at, the women who were in the room were very much saying that like they made clear that the, the fact that there was only you know, one or two women like Louise Coyle from the uh, Northern Ireland Rural Women's Network, the, the Brexit expert, Katie Hayward. Um, mm. It was ridiculous that there was no attempt to include women from the get-go. 
feel that it's almost as if it's, you know, the, the politics of here is so extreme at times that it's men's business, that it's not for women's voices. And also there's a major problem with online abuse. Um, I know that men can receive online abuse as well. I don't take that away. I know that men can can suffer all types of abuse just as as, as women can. But for women, it seems to be, it's more gendered. It's more uh, intense. It's uh, There's more of a sort of, you know, who do you think you are? Whenever you see all of the sort of smaller uh, times this is happening, that feeds into a bigger, wider, toxic atmosphere for women where their lives aren't valued as much, which ends up with, you know, rocketing levels of domestic abuse, which which ends up with you know the amount of, of women that are killed here you know per head of the population just being really extreme in comparison to other populations I mean yeah it's incredible I, I remember when Hillary Clinton came to speak in Northern Ireland at the Waterfront Hall and it was only women in the audience and I was so excited about it and I was you know really young and she was the president of the USA's wife and this you know incredible figure in her own right and I was so excited to hear her speak and her speech ended up being really quite home and hearth. And I was very, very disappointed that she'd framed it all as, you know, it's the mothers and the daughters and the sisters and the wives that suffer when there's conflict because we watch our men getting hurt and injured. And I was like, I mean, really? Well, it was just very, very, very frustrating. But I guess her advisors had written that speech thinking, well, this is this is the kind of audience and, and this is the stuff you need to give them. So I, I agree with you. It, it's incredibly, incredibly frustrating. Is anything being discussed by Stormont about tackling gender-based violence or just even increasing the representation of women in policy discussions oh de- definitely like the the you know there's no shortage of of feminist activists within within the north within uh, northern ireland you know people like the green party leader claire bailey leads the the women's caucus up at stormont the the uh, women's Re- uh, resource and development agency um you know loads of different amazing people like eileen weir and mm. elaine crory and rachel Pyle. you know the feminist uh, recovery plan that was introduced in response to covid and other issues you know, details out evidence-based information about how women's lives are impacted uh, here and, and what we can do to make it better. So there, there are a lot of uh, people with solutions there, if only the solutions would be taken forward. But, you know, we're, we're battling in, in an environment where, you know, I, I think that like, whenever Arlene Foster became the, the DUP leader, you know, it was Edwin Putz, the, the, the current agriculture minister, that made the remark that, you know, even though this was great, you know, that she was going to be leading unionism, that like her most important role was still as a, a wife a mother and it's just those sort of things just aren't said about men and I think that yeah. all builds into sort of a, a culture particularly around the, the Brexit stuff where women just don't like don't feel safe to be visible sometimes on, on these issues yeah. that they're rounded on online whenever they do raise their voices no matter you know they could have qualifications the length of their arm really articulate amazing women you know mm-hmm. being uh, sort of uh, abused and, well and it, it, indeed I mean the women who, who gave evidence to the um, Northern Ireland Affairs Committee last autumn was subjected to misogynistic abuse on social media I mean Naomi Long leader of the Alliance Party gets horrific amounts of it where does the abuse come from is it is it always men is it younger men is it bots Do, is has there been any analysis of of the kinds of of accounts that are doing these pylons 
Um, it's certainly not exclusively men, but it's definitely the vast majority of men that, that, that are involved. And I think that, uh, you know, Rachel Powell from the Women's Resource and Development Agency described it as an abuse fest. And she said it's all connected to the patriarchy, that when women speak about political ideas, it's controversial. And then the mansplaining and sexism and misogyny and online abuse that follows, we just really marginalises women and girls. So, uh, you know, th- there are solutions around this that are brought forward by people about how they can make life better. But I was really struck recently by um, something that the the Green Party leader Claire Bailey said whenever uh, you know we were, we were talking about femicide and she said you know men need to tell us what they can do it shouldn't just be up to women to change their behavior or let them uh, you know everyone else know you know how, how you know we can be helped it's up to uh, men to have those conversations with each other I suppose. Amanda Ferguson thank you so much for joining me on the bunker today you've talked us through such a huge range of issues that are affecting Northern Ireland at the moment and you've done it in an incredibly fluent and succinct way so thank you very very much we do hope that you'll join us again soon. I will do thank you very much for having me I'm sure there'll another crisis just around the corner (laughs) well fingers crossed we get through this one before that happens Uh, and listeners remember there's a new bunker daily every wednesday thursday sunday and start your week on mondays the main panel show of course on tuesdays and the culture bunker on saturdays be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes and if you like this episode why not share it with three friends using the hashtag bunker up You can also back The Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. This is Naomi Smith signing out of The Bunker. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. The Bunker was presented by Naomi Smith with audio production from me, Robin Lever. The Bunker is produced by Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronevich. Andrew Harrison is group editor and Jacob Jarvis lead producer. Our theme tune comes from Kenny Dickinson and The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>